text that I have in the Lishka Brewer in front of me, Mashinogin, Lasso, Kapora, the Arab Yom Kippurin, Lishko Carnival, Akhoven Zotor, the Loma Lola Kutin, Yesh, and Noah Hamida. So Joseph Caro is very happy about Akhoven Zotor. Joseph Caro says that that custom that Jews have, Arab Yom Kippur, to Kapora, to take a rooster or a hen, circle it around their head, to shuck it, and so on, Yesh, and Noah Hamida. He better if he could somehow present this practice to take by Moses Third question, I can only raise now in general terms, and later in the presentation it will become obvious and be more clear why this is a, a serious question. Very briefly, there are two treatises of Hilchot Shuvah, rules and regulations governing repentance, appear first in the Rambam, in a section of Sefer Mada and they appear also in a book written shortly after the Rambam by Rabbi Lazar Rokeach in Germany. The book is called the Rokeach, and he also has a section in that Shulchan Aruch called Hilchot Shuva. These are the first two accounts of Shuva in all the Jewish literature, and they differ radically from each other. The question is why? How do you account for two rabbis almost at the same time, preparing for the first time in history, compendia of the laws of children? And yet if you would put these side by side, and I hope you sometimes do that, you will see that they are hardly uh, the same at all. How do you account for this? Many scholars have wrestled with this particular third issue that I'm raising. Can these be viewed as natural outgrowths of the halakhic process? Is it that the Rambam and the Rokeach read Hanach and Talmud differently? Or must one postulate, indeed as many historians have postulated, that foreign influence needs to be adduced in order to account for the differences between these two accounts of Silkos Jews? Anyway, as I say, I shall elaborate a little later on the specific 
specifics of how these two different compendia uh, differ from each other. Since I am advocating a vertical rather than a horizontal approach to Chuba, it's perhaps wisest to begin with an investigation of the biblical evidence. And when I say an investigation of the biblical evidence, what I mean is an investigation of the plain sense of the biblical text, unencumbered and unenhanced by subsequent classical or medieval Jewish interpretation. And I won't take the time now to elaborate on that other than to say that the Rambam in particular, and many other Rishon and Nahon as well, Maral and famous Akron, who also had this practice, they were very concerned about the plain sense of scripture, aside from, however, Chazal understood scripture, however, the other Rishonim and Akronim understood scripture. I'll just give you a famous sample of the Maral in Sefer Yisrael. Maral asks, how come nowhere in Torah should the cloud, nowhere in the written Torah, is there a reference to a life after death. Quite incredible. What kind of question is Moral asking? Moral uh, surely knew the mission in some heaven and says that anyone who says that the Mason is not in Hathorah loses his share in Allah Havah. And Moral because he surely didn't lose his share in Allah Havah. But Moral understood that you have to ask about the plain sense of the biblical text. Yes, of course, between the lines. You want a darshan, hafafa, hafafa, the kula. You can find everything in the Torah. You will certainly find Kiyasamation in the Torah. You take out Parasavak and Sanhedrin, you will see how well the rabbis did in finding Kiyasamation in the Torah. Moral said, but why isn't it in the plain sense of the Torah? Why, if you, if you read the text and nothing but the text, and not between lines, you will not find Kiyasamation in the Torah. And you have to understand why. So uh, I'm going to be interested in the plain sense of the Torah with regard to Shuba. Now I'm going to raise three questions with regard to the Torah and Shuba. Question one, does the Torah anywhere ordain Shuba? Does the Torah require Jews to repent? And I guess the only way we can answer that question is if we have a definition of tshuva. So for our purposes, we'll take the Maimonidean definition of tshuva, which is a minimal definition of tshuva. The tshuva essentially means charata ala abar, contrition, hatkarat hachet, verbalization of the sin, confession, in the third element, kabola ala habola, resolve never to sin again. Those are the three standard, the minimal definition of Jew. So, I ask you, anywhere in the Torah, can you find anywhere in the Torah where the Torah ordains, requires Jews to do Shuvah as justified? The second question, do we find anywhere in the Torah, among its dramatis personae, that any of them preach Shuvah? Does anybody in the Torah teach that you should do Shuvah? Third question. Are there any Balei Shuvah in the Torah? Five books of Moses. I'll take them one at a time. Take the first question. Does the Torah ordain Shuvah? Just how difficult this question is, and how uncertain the answer is to this question, is underscored by the response of the Rishonim, different Rishonim to this question. The Baal Halakha of Kedolos and Rav Sagrigon 
two of the earliest Jewish authorities to list the 613 mitzvahs omit Shuba. They don't include Shuba in the 613 They didn't see Shuba anywhere in the book. They mention Vibri, they know about confession, but only in the context of bringing the Korban Tatas to Hashem. Certain sacrifices that require confession. So they only know about confession in a cultic context. Non-cultic context, Shuba for sin, unknown to those authorities. The Rambam, who lists a mitzvah of Louis Shuba, pointed to Parshat Noto, Numbers 5-7, to the parsha of Hashem Zela, the verse reads, the Vadu es Chapaka Mashevatu, again, very much a cultic context, we bring in the Karman. And on the basis of that verse, the Raman says there's a mitzvah, in fact, to be Shuba. That's the plain sense of the Raman. But many of you will know here that the Mithaskinos and other authorities interpreted the Raman in such a way that, in fact, they said there is no mitzvah to be Shuba at all. And they held that it was the Ramban's opinion that there's no mystery of Yeshua. I'm afraid that's not really true. Ramban clearly elsewhere in his writing indicates that Yeshua is a mitzvah success. In any event, the mere fact that a Peronin could read the Ramban to say that there's no mystery of Yeshua at all indicates how problematic it was in the eyes of those Aphronin that the only verse the Ramban could find was the verse that had to do with cultic context, bringing the Karban and a very specific kind of Karban. What the Minchat Chinuch said, Minchat Chinuch was in the 19th century, what he said is that Shuba is a means to an end. And the end is Kapara, the end is atonement. And that's an optional, it's an optional thing. You don't want to have atonement, you don't need it. Kapara doesn't require you to have atonement. You prefer to be punished, that's your privilege. But uh, no mitzvah to have Kapara. Shuba is a means for kapara if you'd like to have kapara. It's no different, says the Mitzvah Chinuch, than a divorce document is for divorce. No mitzvah to get divorced. If you want to get divorced, the only legal way to do it is through a divorce document. This is a legal means, but an optional end. And if you write a debt, you have not in any way observed either a Mitzvah Chiyubis or a Mitzvah Chiyubis. Not observe the commandment of the Torah ab initio, the Torah obligates you to do this, or even after the fact that the Torah doesn't obligate you to do it, for example, there are those who say that eating matzah after the first day of Pesach is an obligation to eat matzah, but if you eat matzah, you have a mitzvah to you, which you have a kind of mitzvah. Uh, Mr. said with regard to Yerush and so on, and Shuba, he's done absolutely nothing. You have neither a mitzvah to you, this, nor a mitzvah to you. The Ramban, Moshe ben Nachman, writing in the 13th century, says there is a mitzvah to do tshuva, but he doesn't know about Numbers 5-7 like the Ramban. Ramban said the mitzvah of tshuva is in Deuteronomy 30, verse 2. Vishakta adashev elokecha. And he was preceded in, in the citation of that verse by other authorities in the Sefer HaMitzvah, written in the 10th century by Chetet and Yasuyak and so on. Any other Rishonim? Verse 5 of Ramban. They reject it out of hand. Ramban's proof rejected Yeshua from Deuteronomy 32. Yes, it says we shapta Hashem Read the context. This is a nebula. This is a prophecy. It's a narrative telling what will happen in the end of days. Not only to say you shall do Yeshua. 
When you have a Torah as Gramatis Persani preach Shuva, the answer is an unequivocal no. Nobody preaches Shuva. Fall of Adam and Eve. Adam sins, Eve sins, the Nachash sins. There's no fault of Shuva. God just rattles off punishment. Noah is informed that there's going to be a model. Nothing is said in the biblical text about issuing a fall from Shuvah. The Zohar HaFlaga is not preached to in the biblical text. And Abraham is informed that uh, Sodom and Gomorrah need to be destroyed. Yes, he wrestles with God. But neither he nor God falls upon the Sodomites to repent. Out of the, the Masoretic text of the Israelites. When the name Israel sin and they sin again and again and again, Sefer Shlov, Sefer Vayikra, Sefer Vayikra, they sin again and again. And every time they sin, Moshe Rabbeinu intercedes on their behalf. Moshe Rabbeinu prays to God that he shouldn't punish the name Israel. He never turns to B'nai Yisrael and issues a call for Shuvah. Now there are hints of Shuvah, make no mistake about it, throughout the Torah. Not the verses that I mentioned, even aside from those verses. Hayin and Hebel, in Tezis to Ace, Joseph's brothers, regret, contrition for what they did. He's an Arab. He's on a lot of obligation. So I remain with my answer. My answer is not equivocally not. Nowhere is Shuba called for by any hero in the Torah. So the third question that I raised, are there any Bali Shuba in the Torah? Is anyone identified in the Torah as a Balshu? No. Balshuva? Is he so identified in the Torah? You're going to have to cite me chapter and verse. <laughs> Some one can say that 
Again, plain sense reading the Torah. I preface what I said. Plain sense reading the Torah. There is confession, very clearly mentioned, in a legal context, in a cultic context. This is legislated in the Torah. Vibud. Vibud by certain Karbanos. And Shuba is hinted at in a variety of non-cultic contexts, and the non-legal context in the Torah. Shuba essentially is certainly mentioned at the end of time in both Tovachas, the Shabta, Hashem Alokhafa, and so on, there will be a time when people will return. But again, this is not a legal obligation. Far more significant in the Torah is the concept of Kapara. It occurs everywhere. Throughout the Torah, throughout the various books of the Torah, there's the notion that sins need to be atoned for. And they are atoned for in a variety of ways. One of the most important, of course, is bringing sacrifices. But the death of the Kohen Goro also brings atonement. And we have lots of mention of Kapara again and again throughout the Torah. We have a lot of equal atonement. We don't have to cite verses for that process. In the Torah, it stresses on Kapara. But if we pose the same three questions that I just asked of the Torah to Nevi'im and Ksuvim, if we turn to Nach and pose those questions, we'll have a very different set of answers. Do we find in Nevi'im a call for tshuva? The answer is everywhere. Isaiah 55, 7, Ya'azov Rosha Darko, Yish Oven Nachshavoso, Yosho Zavashem. Jeremiah 3, verse 14, verse 22, Shuvu Banim Shogunim. Shuvu Yisrael HaHashem, says Hosea. All the Nevi'im preach Shuvu. The essence of Nevua is repentance. This is the famous statement of the Ramah. between Torah and Nabi. Nowhere is this tension more apparent than in Sefer Yonah. Yonah flees. Why did Yonah flee? A very enigmatic book, Sefer Yonah. When you start reading Sefer Yonah, not clear at all why he flees. He's right, Shemal Yonah, and I'm Yitai Lema, Kum Lech, El Nimbe, 
starting from Chazal down to the 20th century, have wrestled with this problem and offered many, many different interpretations of why you want to Rashi, right at the beginning of Sefer Yonah, Rashi says that Yonah knew that the people of Nineveh were probate Shuba. The people of Nineveh would very quickly repent if they were called to repent. On the other hand, he knew from experience that the Nei Israel were not quick to repent. And so Yonah flees, Rashi tells us, because Yonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He knows he will succeed in Nineveh. The Assyrians will repent, and the Nei Israel will repent in the case of the Assyrians. And God will express his wrath against the Nei Israel. Yonah wants no part of it. So Rashi, and this Rashi, Rashi didn't invent this theory, this explanation comes straight out of the truth. So Chazal already knew it. So Rashi in Perak 1. Rashi in the third Perak, as in the fourth Perak, meaning the fourth Perak of Sefer Yonah, where after the Ninevites repent, and the Pesach reads, Vayerai el Yonah roa gizola vayichalo. Yonah is very upset that he succeeds in his prophecy. And uh, maybe he succeeds to the extent that the people do listen to him and they repent. Why is Yonah upset? It's frightening. And here Rashi offers a different explanation. And Rashi now says, and Radak as well, and others, that Yonah would now be viewed as a Navi Sheker. Yonah had preached throughout Nineveh, Oda Boan Yon, Nineveh Nefaka. Yonah had preached throughout Nineveh. He took out a head from the Nineveh Times that in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown, right? And 40 days pass, and Nineveh is not overthrown. Looks like a fool. People will say he's a false prophet. So Rashi, Rashi didn't invent that here. And if you're wondering why Rashi could offer one explanation in chapter 1 and a different explanation in chapter 3, don't exercise your mind too much about it because Rashi has practice, a very well-established practice. Rashi holds in front of him, Rashi Chazal. And when he read chapter 1, he had Nikulta in front of him. When he read chapter 4, he had Pirkei Rabbi Lezer in front of him. And both those two sources that I just mentioned offer this other explanation as to why Yonah wanted to kill him. Yonah did not want to be a Novi Shekhar. He knew he would preach that Nineveh will fall. He knew that the Ninevites would repent, and they wouldn't fall. Oh, yes, like a fool. Every Navi that ever preached preaches that Jerusalem will fall. Learn say for Yeheskel. Yeheskel never ceases saying that Yerushalayim will fall. Yeheskel wants Yerushalayim to fall. His vivid hope is that people will repent. The whole point of the war. They'll be the happiest person in the world. People take it seriously. And repent and Yerushalayim doesn't fall. Yonah is worried about his reputation. Someone's going to call him another shepherd? And so, Yitzhak uh, Abarbanel offers, he's very unhappy with these interpretations and offers yet a third interpretation. He said that Yonah, as a prophet, knew that descendants from Nineveh 
for the people of this period would be Sanseirib. And Sanseirib would come one day, according to modern scholarship in 722 BC, and destroy the ten tribes. So Yonah said, why should I allow the Assyrians to exist and so that one day Sanseirib will appear and destroy the ten tribes? Better that they shouldn't repent, better that God should destroy the people of Ninveh now, so that there won't be a Sanseirib who could be a descendant of the people of Ninveh will come one day and destroy the Israelites. Basically, the word of this is that they don't. But Abarmel is very upset with those earlier interpretations of why Yonah was Boreas. But Sefer Yonah tells us in one place why Yonah has Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 2. That's why I have to flee to Tarshish. You want to know God? I'll tell you why. I knew God that you're going to forgive these people. I knew it. I knew it all along. That's why I refused to go to Egypt. Listen, listen to it. He said sleepless last night. You say sleepless all week. You didn't even lead us to sleepless. What do we say in sleepless? Shem Hashem, Kyorachu Bechamu, Erech Apayim, Verachesed, Benes.
But this is Chesed. These are Yudhimu Midos. These are the 13 Midos. These are the merciful attributes of God. So what does this mean? What's merciful about the God of the entirely? God requites sin. God punishes. He doesn't cleanse entirely. But God punishes only the stolen sin. If he would punish you as you deserve to be punished, he'd be right there. God is merciful. So he gives you a slap on the wrist. And he gives the next generation a slap on the wrist. And the third and fourth generation a slap on the wrist. So no one really feels it. Everyone goes home and feels pain. But she says, If you shoot on Mashmash, and then Rashi continues with Rabbi Senu Dorshu, but Chazal said, This is why I have to flee the Tarshish. Now I'll hold the Kumash in front of me. And then the Torah says, the Emet. But God is You'll find that in Yom 
You'll find it in Yoel. You'll find it all over the Nabi, those exact words, Nikon Yoel. This is the new teaching you're going to read. Yonah reflects the tension between the teaching of Hashem in the Torah, which requires Kapara, and the teaching of Hashem in the Zion, which describes it in the For Yonah, there can be no Tshuva without Kapara. And HaKadosh Baruch who teaches that perhaps that was the teaching in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. Maybe that applied in a later stage, in an early stage in Jewish history. But due to the degeneration of the world, certain changes took place. And now Hashem is in Kabbalah Shuvah. Shuvah alone suffices. Those of you know the famous Gemara at the end of Makos. Moshe Rabbeinu Amar. Toki Rabbonavos. Abonim. Boye Cheskeh Uvikla. No more. It's true, once upon a time in the divine realm, the lady teaching the Gemara Makos, once upon a time in the divine realm, when Torah, when Moshe taught the Torah in the divine realm, it's true, okay, I'm going to work for Yechezkel came, not with his own name, Yechezkel in the name of God, in the 18th chapter of the Pesach of Yechezkel, but then he sort of complained, they said, you don't like this business of okay, I'm going to work for one. It's not fair. And so Hashem said, you want to play by your rules, I'll institute your rules. Anefer Shachotei, she said, only the guilty party gets punished. Nobody else. No more. Okay, I'm going to go back. Change. Do I say that enough? That's what happened here. The lesson of Sefer Yonah is that Yonah loses. The lesson of Sefer Yonah is that the halacha is like a punished boracle. And that is why it is read on Yom Kippur. Sefer Yonah is read on Yom Kippur to bring home the message that Shuba alone suffices. On Yom Kippur, after Musa, when you read the whole Avodah on Yom Kippur, it was once a Surah Azodel, and this incredible Avodah of the Kohen on Yom Kippur, all the Korbanos. We have nothing. We have no Beit HaMikdash, no Kohen Gogol, no Korbanos, no Surah Azodel, no Kapara. Where are we? We're lost. So it's Mincha. Three Musas in Eva, we read this Haftarah. And we read this Haftarah of Yehudah. Yonah, where Hashem teaches Yonah. Yes, Yonah. You're still working with that teaching in the Torah, that Shuvah must have kapara with it. The answer is, Shuvah alone suffices. The people who invaded Shuvah, it was a genuine Shuvah, and I accept that Shuvah. No kapara. No kapara. Shuvah alone suffices. And I have a feeling that the reason it's connected, and this is only a suggestion to the Parsha of Arayos, is because Jewishly there's no more severe infraction the Arayah Shikha Tzomim and Avodah Zorah, Jews are not suspects of Shikha Tzomim, Avodah Zorah, the Mara says already, by Shani time, no longer was a problem for Jews. One problem that remains for Jews are the three most serious crimes, sins, the Arayahs. And even Arayahs, Shuva alone suffices. Genuine Shuva suffices. That's the message of reading Matthew Yonah of Mincha. Now in passage two on the page to have in front of you. You show me Makos. Everything that I just said is summed up in this paragraph. Show a little Chachma. Chachma refers to the wisdom literature of Sunnah. The books of Shlomo. Show the Chachma. 
Wisdom was asked, What is the reputation for a sinner? And so Sefer Mishle answered, Omra, Kapodim The test has a dog Sinners, evil pursues sinners. Wisdom literature teaches, you know what happens to sinners? They get caught up in their own evil. The trap that they did for someone else, they fall into themselves. They destroy it. Evil pursues sinners. What should be answered? What's the takana for a kote? The answer is he's going to be pursued by evil. Show the divinian kote matakana. The prophets were asked, what is the rectification for a sinner, for a professional sinner? Omru, Yechezkel said, 18.4, Hanefesh akoteis itamus. You sin? You die. You rebel against God. Show la Torah. I'll skip David's reason. Show the David Hakotei Malam. Show David was asked. This is the other books other than the wisdom books in Suvim. Malam only shows the Tehillim, and he said, "Tamu Chatolim in Oret." His dogation is there. Chatolim means sinners, habitual sinners. Tamu Chatolim in Oret. You know what the rectification for sinners is? They will be dis- they will disappear. The Torah was asked, what's the rectification for a sin? What will happen to sinners? The Torah knows Kapara. Omrah, what does the Torah answer? Yogi Korban Hashem Yitzchakerlo. Yes, you can do Shuva. Only with Kapara. It's a pain. It has to be atoned. The animal has to die. You have to sacrifice money, whatever it may be. Payment has to be made. God was asked, Omar teaches Beautiful medrash called Medrash Yona. Gathering dust in the libraries at Oxford and Cambridge. It's published by a scholar named Yelenek at the turn of the century. And Medrash Yona. It says as follows at the end of the measure. If you read Sefer Yonah, by the way, for God speaks to Yonah, the story of the Yonah, and uh, we don't hear a word about Yonah again. We don't know what Yonah's response was. You're left hanging there wondering whether Yonah agrees with God, doesn't agree with God. There's no problem for the measure. She listens to the measure. The yet the God explained to Yonah the importance of having mercy, of Rachamin, in the story of Yonah. And therefore, Yonah, if you are so concerned about this plant that died, should I not be concerned about animals and living human beings in Nineveh? Yona fell to the ground on his face. The Omar and Yona said, Hane Olonka the Nida Continue to rule this world, the Nida Farachman, not the Nida Two great medieval authorities gathered together all the rules and regulations governing the children. I mentioned this story. They are, of course, the Rambam, the Yukos Chumba, and the Rokeach, and Sefer Rokeach. I want you to realize that you have how important 
the Rambam and Burkhardt. The Rambam invented the Hukachuba. There was no Hukachuba in the None of the government ever wrote a treatise called Hukachuba. And uh, in fact, this was celebrated by none other than Ramban. Moshe the Nachman, when he had to defend Ramban in the Maimonidean controversy, the Ramban writes in defense of the Ramban as follows. In Sefer Hamada, the incredible book, the Ramban listed all the mitzvahs of say, the mitzvahs of say, in his code. The Rambam sort of says in Shuba, the Hikos Shuba, the Benachas Shuba, the Likushos, the Havayos, the Matik Margolios, the Amatimu de Great Shuba, the Talmud, the Rachmat Kozorim, the Kodobim. And the Talmud is scattered all the place. The first person to gather all these rules was the Rambam. Then Havayos, the Hagodos, the Ligubim, the whole Chibure, the only Rishonim, the Rachonim, the Matimu, the Samyam. Nowhere near the Jewish religion. Rushim, the Pokatsayan, the Lonin, Kashrahim, the Parashim, the Oren, the Sefer, Ahu, and the Mugot, Nidin, and Yukos, the Sorum, the Bakut, the Yukosim. The Ban celebrated Rambam's Hilchot The second Hilchot Shuvah, the one perhaps that most of us are less familiar with, was authored by the Ravaza Rakeach, who died in 1238. And briefly, he introduced four categories of tshuva, whose titles, at least, are unprecedented in Jewish literature. These four categories, category one, tshuva habar, is what he called it. It's really, uh, the essence of it, it appears in the Sechat Yoma. It refers to the sinner reliving the very scene and circumstances of his original sin without succumbing to it. Tshuva habar, also isha, also makal, and so on. To relive the sin entirely, not sin. That's one kind of chuva. We call that chuva hagodah. We call for that kind of chuva. Chuva hagodah, the second category, invented as a word by the Rokea, refers to additional restrictions which serve as fences around the law. So that the penalty.
was Hagoder, the second category, invented as a word by Europea, refers to additional restrictions which serve as fences around the law, so that the penitent, so that the penitent will be protected from sin. The third category is called Shubat Amishpa. Shubat Amishpa refers to a Benson-like calculus used to measure the appropriate level of suffering necessary to counterbalance the pleasures derived from sin. You will okay, ask God, but if you sin, and if you derive pleasure from sin, you have to counterbalance that pleasure with any equal amount of pleasure. This is Shubat Amishpa. Shubat Hakasa, which is sort of a subcategory of this third category that I just mentioned, Shubat Hakasa means that suffer the punishment, the punishment that scripture lays out for you, this legally prescribed punishment, assuming there would have been a bedroom, you could apply the punishment. Since we don't have a bedroom, we can't apply that punishment precisely, so we find some equivalent that we now do. And you bring this punishment upon yourself. What we have here in Ashkenaz is a view of Chuba and Kapara. That we saw in the Torah, relives, reborn, among the Hasidic Ashkenaz, among the pious people of Ashkenaz. It's already reflected in the book that was written before the Rakhayat, a book known as Sefer Hasidim, and describes this in the Hasidim. The view here is one that is characterized by a profound concern for kapara, for atonement, and specifically for self inflicted kapara. This contrasts sharply with the Rambam's view of tshuva and of tshuva, which speaks only of the Yikurim in Hashemayim. If God wants to bring down upon you some punishment, that's God's privilege. But the Rambam knows nothing about self-inflicted punishment. In order for me to underscore the radical nature of tshuva as it was in medieval Ashkenaz, as compared to tshuva as it was in medieval Spain, I want to read to you a portion of one response from written in the 15th century in Germany. The case was that of an adulterous woman who sought penance. And she turned to the Gabal Hador, the Yaakov Vile, the Nari Vile, and this is Charles Hashidus, Nari Vile, who he was dead. He died in 1456. And Nari Vile begins his tour by explaining that one must be lenient in such cases, lest the penance never materialize. You don't want to fight the leg. After that introduction, that means is crucial, he then continues as follows. Dati de Kusha, Tevan, Shahadova, Mishkusam, Makol, Yeshola, Farid, Shahara, Varan. Since everyone knows about this, it's public knowledge that she was adulterous. She has to confess her sin publicly. As it says in Proverbs, whoever covers up their sins will never succeed. That just refers to adults. She has to go to the women's section of the shul, and she has to confess her sin openly before all the women there. And she has to confess in a language they understand and she understands. And the 
do this journey. The Gitar said the base kilos. You have to do this at least in two different scenarios. Or begin with the three kilos. The Kondo Ulma, the Salzburg, the Pappenheim. Welcome to Chukula. Apparently she has literally built in Pappenheim, so it's three different scenarios. The first here called Ezra She has to remove all her jewelry. She goes to the Kate to Shuntasha to the Flagay to Shkolin Tadeva. So she wears black clothes in the morning.
treatise written in the 14th century in Spain, in Norris Amor, and I'm going to read what he has to say. And here you have a response to no need to fast. No need to wear woolen clothes. No need to punish your body for clothes. You may not refuse to eat meat and drink wine at appropriate times. They returned the stolen items that they had stolen. This is something about the story of Stephen The verse doesn't say God looked at the way they punished themselves. God looked at their deeds where they supposed to be The essence of Shuba is genuine Shuba, wholehearted Shuba. This dichotomy that I'm describing between Torah and Nevi'im, between Spain and Germany, expresses itself with regard to Kaparov. We're shown in Kaparov that the Ramban in Spain banned Kaparov. In the Sefer Orchos Chaim, of Rabbi Aaron Akon of Lunel, he says very specifically, the Rishon, wrote in the first half of the 14th century, that Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman Ramban in Spain banned Kaparov. He's not allowed to show you the Kaparov very much. You heard me read the Joseph Carroll and Shulchan Aruch, which of course is part of reading, what does he say? Yesh the Noah Aminah. That's what he says in our printed Shulchan Aruch today. But go look at the first edition of the Shulchan Aruch. You know what he said? Rome in Ishkus. That's been censored out of the Shulchan Aruch. Yesh the Noah Aminah. And the Rashbor, of course, in the Beit Yosef, and Joseph Carroll knew about the Ramban and the Rashbor, and that's why he expressed the Halakha of the Mahidah. But the famous Shuba, the Shuba, the Rashbor, again banned the newly emerging Kaparos in Spain again and the Rashford somewhere perhaps around the year 1300 the Rashford writes as follows in the printed Shuba for the Rashford paid a dollar Shuba 395 Rashford says I saw in Barcelona the people were shlugging Kaparos and Shagavar and Shubi Nogin to Yosem Bajesh or Yishokim Tango Zokein the Kaparos Al Nar Hayubot they were shacking um, the carnival, they, they looser. And this was a kapara. Notice the Nahayula. The kapara where a child was born. The Chokhin Rosho, the Kolom Rosh, the Nososo, the Pesach Abayi, the Shimon, and the whole practice of the Nahayula. The Havon Harbe Shayu, the Enai Kedarki Hamori. My eyes, it smacked of idolatrous practice. The Hakti of the Harbe. Now the Rashba says, he began to ban Kapara from the longer Kapara's in Barcelona. 
I heard that the Ashkenazim, Ayoshimi, one of the Samedis, we have some representatives now, they're Samedis to Barcelona in Cuba. Shekol Rabbani Arsam Osin Kain Azayim Atatuni. The Germans all the Rabbani spoke about. Arrogant said. The Shoftim the Kapara Avozim the Kaigon. Kam Shamati Kinishal Rabbeinu Haigon Zalva Amashi Kain Nohavu. It's even already recorded that Haigon knows about this fact. The Imkozer Monati Hanimin Hazemimim. They presented Shodim Spain, Kapora was a little country. In Germany, Kapora was an essential ingredient for the well-being of home of Israel. Regarding Kapora, it was essentially for the protection of those lives most vulnerable in the medieval period. Infants and fetal life. Sin requires Kapora. And the Torah long ago taught in the Midos of the Torah where we have Shalachim Bethanun, Emes stated in the Midas. Midas Hadin. What is Midas Hadin? Children can be young. As we explained by Hazar, we're talking about children at very young age. Children are vulnerable. He is certainly vulnerable. Vulnerable because of Tokyo Havana. Shuvah alone sufficed. Once the parents did Shuvah, there was no need to be concerned about this. So, the creative tension between two types of Shuvah surfaced once again in the medieval period. And not simply, I want to stress this, Shuvah versus Kapara. Nor was it even so in the biblical Torah knows about Shuvah. Torah knows about Kapara. But the Torah's stress is on Kapara. There are two streams in the Torah. The dominant stream and the receptive stream. In the Torah, Shuvah is the receptive stream. In the Nevi'im, there are also two streams. The Nevi'im know about Shuvah and they know about Kapara. But the Nevi'im stressed Shuvah. And these dominant and recessive traits, nuances, if you like, were inherited by Chazal. Kept them under wraps, as it were, and bequeathed them to their medieval successors. The Chazal wrote here these traits, and they came up with a very famous Brisa, which is called the Abba Chinuke Kapara. So, which sins require Kapara, and which sins require Shuvah alone? The Chazal These two, two streams were addressed by Chazal itself. In the medieval period, the two streams of Allahic development would flow once again in all their former glory, each in its own distinctive way. Far influence, no doubt shape some of the contours of these meandering streams, but their energy, their very ebb and flow, derives from a source that predates those foreign influences and will long outlive them. It derives from the teachings of the Torah of Nevi'im and the Ksuvim, the teachings of the Torah Shabbat and the teachings of the Torah Shabbat. Let me close with passages from all the Jewish literature. I hope what you had tonight was in part reflected 
in the past we've known about three. This is Rabbeinu Bachir in his Chobos Halavolos. Rabbeinu Bachir writes, Rabbeinu Bachir is called the great sage of Andalus, who lived uh, in southern Spain in, in the 11th century. A person must make a reckoning with his soul and judge it as to every matter that is established in it pertaining to the knowledge of God and his book, the Torah. And with regard to the traditions of the ancients, the history of his forefathers, and the meaning of the prayers and the hymns. These are all things you learned in your youth, when you first began to grow and when you were first initiated into your studies. For the form of subtle things in the eyes of a person of weak understanding is different from their form in the eyes of an intelligent person. The stronger your understanding, the stronger your certainty of things. Therefore, you must not be content with difficult matters, with the explanations that were impressed on your mind at the beginning of your studies, but rather you need to reconsider the Torah and the prophets. Now that your mind is stronger, and your understanding sharper, as if you had never read a letter of them. You should undertake to explain and clarify the mitzvot to yourself, perceiving every word and expression in them, extracting all their meaning, seeking both what is clearly defined and what is doubtful, both the revealed and the secret, what can be used as an analogy and what cannot. You need to deal the same way with philos, with the prayers and the hymns trying to understand their language and their purpose, so that when you approach the Lord with prayer, you will understand the words your tongue is uttering and the meaning your heart is conveying. You cannot follow the habit of your youth when you said with your tongue whatever words you could pronounce, however they came out, with no understanding of their meaning. You should deal in the same way with the history of the Jewish people and with their traditions. You should try to understand that history thoroughly. You must not be satisfied with what you achieved when you first began your studies. Rather, demand of yourself that you reconsider as if you were a novice. Reconsider everything you learned until you, until you discover new meanings in the Book of God and the books of the prophets and the sages. Such meanings that you could never have understood from the teachers who taught you when you first began your studies. See what's in the book. Perhaps persecution, I didn't say it, you said it. Perhaps persecution, because what I was really 
um, exactly back on the ground were that, that, as the historian pointed out, that there were influences there. I mean, is it just coincidence that in one place where these influences existed, they had wound up picking up on that strain, and um, in the other place they picked up on the other strain, you know, and, and it just coincided with these influences? Um. It's very difficult for me to, I can't say whether it's just coincidence, but what I can see is looking back in history, whatever the factors were, they came simply to be Christianity because in a pre-Christian period we had the same thing. In the same places? No, no, in other places. In other words, that tension exists profoundly, for example, in Sefer Yonah, to give you an example. In other words, what I, I can trace throughout history and throughout the generations this same tension. So uh, I, I hesitate to ascribe it simply to the fact that Medieval German Jews were in the Christian context, and medieval uh, 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 Sephardic Jews were largely, not entirely, but largely in an Islamic context. By the way, there was an Islamic asceticism. Rabbeinu uh, Bachia was an ascetic, and um, uh, very much influenced uh, by Sufism. So the Sufis uh, were Islamic ascetics who wore the same. Woolen robes, wore the same hemp, did the same fasting, and they're all the same practice, pretty much as we find among secular Ashkenazis. Yet somehow that didn't influence, or apparently didn't influence most parts. So uh, apparently that's not going to be enough to account for this. We're going to have to find other other explanations. I'm not sure what those other explanations are, but it's not simply Christianity or something. Thank you very much. Who, as usual, forces us to think to consider things we often take for granted. May we all be known to do tshuva and to achieve kapara the coming days. Thanks a lot.